0: Have you ever loved someone so much that you followed them around and talked endlessly about them to all your friends and family? That's how much we love rhododendron, a quirky and amazing genus of flowering plants with a deep human history and an incredible ecological legacy. Follow along on our adventures as we learn about the remarkable things that folks all around the world have done for the love of rhododendron. Episode 9, What Keeps Me Up at Night. In this episode, we meet our intrepid podcast narrator. That's right, you get to meet me, Dr. Juliana Medeiros. I got together with my fellow podcast hosts, Connor and Christina, to discuss how genus rhododendron sparked a fire in my collector's heart, and how it makes an ideal study system for all kinds of biological research. I present my theory that leaves are indeed the coolest things in the universe and we learn that unanswered questions about rhododendron are what keep me up at night for like Anne Bronte I love the silent hour of night for blissful dreams may then arise revealing to my charmed sight what may not bless my waking eyes
1: Well, welcome to this month's episode of For the Love of Rhododendrons. Uh, My name is Connor Ryan. I am one of the hosts, and alongside me is Christina Woodward, um, another one of the hosts of this podcast, and today we are interviewing a third host, Juliana (laughs) Maderos. Welcome, Juliana.
0: Hi, Connor. Hi, Christina. Thanks for inviting me to be interviewed by you.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's great. to, It's funny because Juliana and I work together, um, but we don't really work together <laughs> because we don't see each other all that often in pandemic world and um, office space situation. Um, it's funny. It's also funny because Juliana and Christina are two of the first people I have met in the rhododendron world um, since I started working on rhododendron. I started my job um, at Holden Arboretum in um, April of 2019 and I met Juliana right after I started and then Christina I met in May of 2019 and so they're very very early on um, people in my rhododendron journey
0: (laughs) and those were the in-person days
1: yes (laughs) very true (laughs) well I guess it's
0: it's great that we didn't uh shy you away from rhododendrons that would have been a tragedy
1: yes a a real tragedy (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. So, uh, let's get going.
1: Um, of course I, I always think, you know, big, big question to ask someone, um, about rhododendrons is how'd they get hooked? It seems like everyone who is in this community is just an absolute nut and everyone has a different story. So Juliana, how'd, how'd you get into rhododendron?
0: Um, okay. Well, that's a, it's a really good story. Basically, um, back in 2012, I was looking for a job as a research scientist. And um, a job at Holden Arboretum came across my, you know, list of available jobs. And I'd done an internship at the New York Botanical Garden a few years before that. And I thought, wow, I would love to work at Botanical Garden. So I looked at the job application. And as a scientist, one of the things you're supposed to do in your job application is basically look at the resources of the organization that's looking to hire and figure out like what would be your research subject if you went there what would you study what would you do while you were there so I did this they they call it lovingly stalking. so I did some stocking of Holden Arboretum and I basically found that they had plant collections um And I was really excited about that. I'm a collector at heart, so there was that. But also um, there was this beautiful taxonomic collection of rhododendron. And that's interesting to me because I think we'll probably talk about it more later, but the work that I do is what they call comparative, meaning that I basically look at different types of plants and compare how they do under different conditions. And so when you look at a botanical garden taxonomic collection, it's, it's really cool for that topic because you basically have all these plants growing in one location. Um, so I got really excited about them and I put them in my job application, which I submitted. And then luckily for me, they invited me for an interview. And as a scientist, when you do a job interview, you have to give a talk. And you have to give a talk about what you've done in the past and what you would do should you be hired at that organization. So I gave a talk about um, the work I had done in my graduate career. And then I said, hey, and rhododendrons. So I just basically proposed this idea of working on rhododendrons. And then it was really, I was excited about it, but I got even more excited about it because right after my talk. Steve Krabs, who's a very big name in the American Rhododendron Society, um, used to be the past president of the Great Lakes chapter. He brought a baggie full of leaves. And he wanted to talk to me and we sat down at a picnic table. And he just started pulling all the leaves out of the baggie. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, look at that one. Look at that one. Look at that one. Look at that one. And so he really sealed the deal. Like, the diversity of the traits of the morphology, it was just super exciting to me. And so I just basically picked up the banner of studying rhododendron for my my topic of study. Um, and I guess, as they say, the rest is history.
1: Yeah, that's really great. And as someone who is kind of in charge of that rhododendron collection at Holden now, it's, it's so it's so funny because we have all of these different plant collections. And rhododendron is one of those ones that you could just have this amazing collection and incredibly diverse collection without even trying because there's just so many of them. It's like, it's just the numbers are endless. And then that's just from like me thinking as like a horticulture, like pretty plant person. Um, But then when you like start to like really narrow down into what's so cool about these things beyond just the prettiness, it's pretty easy to get excited.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're like the Pokemon of plants. You got to catch them all. Like once you know that the diversity is there, it's just like, ooh, there's one with furry leaves. Ooh, that one's really short. And so you just get kind of sucked into it, to be honest.
1: Yeah, and so now you're working as a plant biologist, that's your title, I believe, even though I work with you. And I I think you had a a pretty non-traditional path towards becoming a scientist.
0: Yeah, I guess I would say non-traditional. Now it feels pretty normal, but. (laughs) So basically um, growing up as a kid, you know, you often hear people say, oh, I always wanted to be a scientist. Um, And actually I never wanted to be a scientist. I was an art kid, I was a theater kid, um, I made costumes, I did poetry, um, I was a, I was first a creative writing major in college, then I was a theater major, and then I was an anthropology major, and I actually didn't even know about plants. Um, I know that sounds funny, but there's this thing called plant blindness where a lot of people actually go around the world and they don't see plants. They're sort of like furniture or like a curb on the sidewalk. Like it's just an object. So I definitely grew up with plant blindness. And then I actually dropped out of college, out of my undergrad, um, about three quarters of the way through. I got disillusioned and I just, I didn't know what I was doing. So I dropped out and I ended up moving out into the country. And I had a little two-year-old and I read some parenting thing that if your two-year-old is bored, you can plant them a garden. And that's like a thing for kids to do. And so I did that. And that was when everything just opened up for me for plants. I was like, oh my gosh, these things are cool. And the garden was fun but what I really got excited about was I started looking at the landscape where I was living so I was living in the southwest in New Mexico and what you see is over years the climate is really variable and it's very stressful so over time you'll see these different plant species actually being successful on the landscape so like one year you'll have like a really dry spring and one species will just be everywhere. Like one year, I remember like carpets of verbena. And then the next year you'll have a wet spring and a dry summer. And so the dominant species will shift. And so like the next year, it was like four o'clock everywhere. Um, And that's what really got me excited about plant ecophysiology, which is um, the specific area of study, which is basically how do plants how do their bodies work? How do they physically like endure the climate and the stress that they experience? So that, that, that was a revelation to me. And that's when I went back to college and I basically finished my undergrad degree in biology. And then it was almost like I couldn't get enough. I kept trying to just sort of walk away from it and just do whatever. And it was just like, no, I just kept getting drawn back into plants. So I did end up doing an internship at New York Botanical Garden, which was huge for me. It made me fall in love with nonprofits. It made me fall in love with botanical gardens as, you know, places that are doing good work. Um, so then I went back to graduate school. And I think after I went back to get my master's, it just pretty much started being this straight line towards plant biologists. Um but it it did take me a long time to find that path for sure.
2: Yeah, I was. That's fascinating. You know, I love these intriguing steps that people take. You know, to get where they are, and um, to thoroughly embrace what you really want to do in life. I think that's just great. Um, so now that you've got um, this this wonderful job at Holden or Forests and Garden. Um, plant biologist, I think, can mean a lot of different things. Um, literally anything, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what do you do in your job? What's it like being a scientist at an arboretum?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll take that from two directions. The first is um, the job of being a scientist and leading a lab is largely a job of being a writer and an editor and a manager. So I think people often think about scientists as being at a lab bench, you know, with their test tubes and stuff. But once you're the head of a lab, your job really is to write proposals, to get funding for projects to happen in the lab. And then to basically provide the energy to write the, the scientific papers because scientific paper writing is extremely difficult. It's very, very difficult. So even people who can collect the data, um, it takes a lot more years to actually get the skills to write the papers and the grants than it does to collect the data. So the fun of being in the lab and collecting the data actually falls to all the people that I supervise. So I supervise um, graduate student um, and I supervise um, interns. Um, the interns might be there for you know 12 weeks or they might be there for like a whole year. And then I also supervise um, more advanced positions like a postdoctoral scholar. So that's somebody who has their PhD, but they need, basically, it's sort of like a doctor's residency. Um, so my day-to-day job, I would say is primarily writing and people management. Um, And I think um, that was a surprise to me and it is a surprise to most people. Um, I guess the other way I would answer that question is plant biologist is a very broad term and it, it denotes a lot of different fields of study and my field of study, I identify as a plant ecophysiologist. So I basically am interested. Physiology is the study of how the organism works. So a doctor, your doctor is a physiologist, a human physiologist. So in a lot of ways, I'm like the same sort of role for plants, but what I study is what stresses them out. So I'm interested in like, how do they deal with frost? How do they deal with drought? How do they deal with heat waves? So when you think about your body and how your body basically responds to like climatic stress, if you're cold, you put on a coat, um, you, you have sweating, all these different like behaviors and physiological responses that you have plants also have those same experiences, but plants can't move. And so climate stress becomes even harder for them. They don't have houses they're just there so that's really uh, I talked a little bit about that experience I had um, looking at the plants when I was first getting into plants and seeing the different species sort of be successful under the different conditions that that wonder has stuck stuck with me my whole time that's what excites me that's what makes that's what keeps me up at night you know that's what I think about when I when I'm looking at rhododendrons and looking at all those leaves that Steve Krebs showed me, I was like, what are these doing? What climate conditions are these weird traits that they have? What are they helping them with? So like rhododendrons tend to have um, fuzzy leaves, and that's created by an outgrowth of the epidermis called trichomes. And so the trichomes are super fascinating because they could basically keep you more humid or they could keep you more warm or something like that. So, I guess in terms of what my b- job as a plant biologist is, it has this sort of cut and dried like I'm writing, managing, but then it has this imaginary side where I just get to think of like questions and just ponder like why did that do that? Why does it look like that, you know? Um, and I do, um, being in an arboretum is actually a, it's actually a very special place to be a scientist. I mentioned my internship at New York Botanical Garden. I fell so in love with nonprofit as a way to help the world. Um, I'm the kind of person that I want my job to be meaningful and I want my job to be my legacy, to be a positive one for humanity. And so I think, being a scientist at an arboretum, I don't think I would want to work anywhere else but a botanical garden or arboretum now that I've been there.
2: What a marvelous answer.
0: <laughs>
2: you know, it, um I think it goes without saying that the artistic trend that you display in your work uh, is very much embedded in, you know, how you how you started with an interest in art. Um, I love that description of you know, how people keep warm and comfortable and safe. And, you know, then let us see the the plants reaction to the same kind of, of environment. So, you know, that to me is a true display of artistic bent with a scientist. Uh, I love it.
0: (laughs) Thank you. You know, it's funny because the societal view of science is very much only analytical. And I actually suffered from a lot of lack of confidence that my creative abilities were meaningful and important in science Um, and that's something that I have grown into and a thousand percent my creative my artistic side has such an important role to play in my job and it's a lot of of why I am able to do the things that I do well when you think about the amazing scientific discoveries they all had a creative element so, but it, it, it took me a while to sort of embrace that as not, a, as not a detriment to my scientific work, but actually a benefit.
1: Yeah, and if, if just more people could see that you don't just have to be this like very rigid, like only books, only lab type person. And you could like, you can actually have fun and, and have like interesting ideas and be... Be a very uh, interesting person and be a scientist,
0: yeah, my math skills are are solidly middling. <laughs> you know, I can follow a formula, but um, I don't actually do a lot of math in my day to day because the stuff I do is not mathematical. Um, I do statistics, but a program actually calculates all that, so I just know have to know how to use it., right. so yeah.
1: Well, so you've talked about, um, you know, noticing how rhododendrons—some of them have fuzzy leaves, and some of them don't—and you talked about doing a lot of comparative work um, as part of your job. Can you talk about some of the um, some of the work that you do?
0: Yeah. So, um, early on in my plant biology career, I got really fascinated with the idea that when you look at, there's different organs on the plant. So they have leaves, they have wood, they have roots, and they have flowers. These are the four sort of main organs. And I got really fascinated with how those organs actually work together. So when you look at classic plant physiology research, a lot of it focuses really closely on one cell type or one organ so you might do a study of photosynthesis and you're looking at the enzyme that fixes carbon rubisco but when you look at from a perspective on the landscape basically the plant that gets to be the winner in a given environment it the whole plant actually has to survive it's not just the leaf that survives it's that leaf attached to that flower and that wood and those roots, and I started to get even more fascinated by this concept when I when I got into um, thinking about the evolution of physiological traits. So in evolution, whoever has the most offspring wins, right? They're the ones that get to decide who's in the next generation, and when you when you look at plant physiology, um, that that game of who is going to win and who is going to lose, it's all going to depend on the working together of those different parts. So you might have the most amazing photosynthetically efficient leaf in the whole universe. But if you're combined with roots that aren't able to take up enough water in the soil, you're still going to die. So you need actually suites of traits that work together to basically create an organism that's gonna be surviving and growing and producing a lot of offspring. So that's really the, the, the grounding of the type of work that I, the questions that I ask. So for example, um, we just published a paper on the microbes that live on rhododendrons. And we looked at the leaves and the roots. And what we find is that the, the pattern of how leaves and roots behave across different types of rhododendrons is really varied. So you can't make assumptions about the roots based on looking at the leaves. So that's a sort of an example of the kind of thing that we would look at. Um, beyond that, I've also been, my other sort of area of focus is basically the what I call the trade-off between carbon and water. So when you look at a plant, um, I think most people know that they have these pores on their leaves called stomata. And in order to do photosynthesis, the leaf, the stomata, which it looks like stomata means leaf mouth in Greek. So it looks like a little mouth that's opening up. And what it does is it exposes the inside of the leaf, all the cells in the leaf to air. And that's how the leaf gets the carbon dioxide to do photosynthesis. So it opens the stomata The air from outside can flow in and the cells inside the leaf can do photosynthesis. The problem is, if you want to call it a problem, when the cell opens those, when the leaf opens the stomata, those cells are also exposed to being dried by the air. So if you imagine yourself, if you opened your mouth and just kept it open permanently, your mouth would dry out. And that same thing happens in the plant is that when they open their stomata, the water starts evaporating from inside there. And if they don't do something about it, the leaf would just dry out and turn into like a hard, crispy, dead thing. So my my field of study basically combines this idea that there's different organs that all need to work together. And then this idea that that plants actually have to replace the water that they lose from this photosynthetic activity really rapidly and they do that by taking water up from the roots transporting it through the wood and then transporting it into the leaf so you see right there that this carbon water relations and this you know crosstalk between organs it's actually a really interesting conceptual link because the roots and the wood and the leaves have to work together to supply that water so it gives you that grounding. And then the question becomes like, what are the other things that the leaves and the wood and the roots are coordinating? Is everything coordinated or can they mix and match? So that's the short version, believe it or not.
2: <laughs> this is fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Who would ever have thought, you know, that a leaf is so intricate? <laughs>
0: You know, they yeah. are the coolest things in the universe, mm. if you ask me, they're very intricate.
1: <laughs> when I interviewed for my job, you had told me that you like rhododendron as this potential like model system for studying woody plants. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I, I, I tend to agree, I think it sounds like a great idea and it's, it seems like a really appealing group of plants for that.
0: Yeah, so the model system idea really comes from evolutionary biology. Um, and and so when I was doing my PhD, I was working in a group of plants called um, Larea or the creosote bush. So if you've ever been to the southwestern desert, it's the plant you see everywhere. Um, and I got really fascinated by the idea that different populations of the species have different traits and it's basically the path to evolve to the evolution of new species and so that's when i really got excited about the evolution of physiology and there's a there's a there's a direct conflict between studying physiology and evolution evolution is a population level process So anything you do in evolutionary biology, it has sample sizes of like 10,000, like that would be a sample size in evolutionary biology. But in physiology, first of all, things are slow to measure. It might take you a lot of time to make one measurement, like an hour. But then also plants are dynamic in their physiology, so you can't just go on any you know, Thursday at three, I got this data, like you need actually to characterize across environmental conditions, because what the plant is doing on Thursday at three is not the same, it's going to be doing on, you know, April 23rd at 9am. So it's really a lot of work to characterize physiology, and a sample size in physiology that would be good is three. So now you see a conflict, I can't get 10,000. So, how am I going to study this? And so, when I first got interested in evolutionary biology, everybody says, Oh, you can't study woody plants. Sorry, not a thing. They're too long lived, can't can't do 10,000, can't cycle through generations. Um, So, sorry, nothing to see here, move along. And I glommed onto this idea of a model system. And the idea of the model system is that you're going to take a a finite group of individuals, and you're going to focus on them for a really long time, and even over generations. So the most famous model system in plants right now is Arabidopsis, and it's this little weedy plant, and you can grow like ten thousand of them in a little box. And um, people all over the world have basically turned this into a phenomenon. So I I can't even really fathom the knowledge that's been gained by just literally thousands of people around the whole world over the last 30 years working in Arabidopsis. They've made genetics discoveries, they've made development discoveries, like just out of this world. And so I thought, like, what if we applied that same idea to rhododendron? Sure, it's long-lived, but that's not a reason to not study it. Like if we start now in 30 years, you know, we'll have that information and we can develop it as a tool in that way and so when I came to Holden that's that was in the back of my mind when I saw that rhododendron was a collection and when Steve Krebs showed me the leaves I was like it's my model system finally I like yay and you know it's there it's ready it's ready to be studied um and one of the things that makes rhododendron really exciting from that perspective is the hybrids So when you look at evolutionary biology, a major thing they do to try to solve problems is they make hybrids. They make them and they call them F1. And then they do these things where they take their hybrids and they back cross. And that's actually what hybridizers do to create, you know, new interesting plants. So that was super appealing from that perspective, this idea that there's this group of plants that's waiting, just sitting there begging. To be a model system. And then the last thing that I really, um, the last thing that really pushed it over the edge for me is I really truly believe that scientists need to do a better job of communicating and not just telling people about their results, but actually communicating with the problems, finding out what people want to solve. Um, We need to be actually talking about what we do and we need to be sharing it and it needs to be useful. So that was where rhododendron became the ultimate model system for me is that it has this human dimension. People just love it, weirdly, and I I fell in love with it too. And so when you think about having that ability to, to do something applicable, to talk to people who might observe something and then we can go back and test it in the lab that pushed it over the edge for me to being like the ultimate thing that you should invest in it over generations. So I often call it my 20 year project. You know, when the evolutionary biologists are like, uh, you're starting to trying to study a woody plant. Ha ha. I say, well, it's a 20 year project. So.
1: And someone's got to do it.
0: (laughs) Someone's got to do it.
2: So really you're pathbreaking in science
0: yeah i mean that sounds a little that sounds like too important to to agree to but i guess so
2: <laughs> it's a small path it is
0: <laughs> very it's a little teeny weeny path but i'm breaking it yeah
1: for now it's for gonna now. get bigger mm-hmm. yeah it's gonna, it's gonna be a highway it's my super highway
0: <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! yeah i we know um Right around the time I applied for the job at Holden, I had gone to a conference and I saw a talk by the woman who, who started the Arabidopsis, you know, network, basically the, the web presence. What do they call it?
1: Tear? Is
0: that what it is? Yep. The Arabidopsis information resource.
1: Yeah.
0: And the, I was like, if we had this for rhododendron, the, the world would just open up. And so that's that model system approach, it's it's pretty much a core to everything I do.
1: Well, that's a great lead into your the well, not just yours, but the, the Rhododendron Research Network, which I know you're an instrumental person in. I participated in small pieces. But that, that seems like a great step towards creating that that tear for rhododendron.
0: That was kind of the idea. I was about in 20, maybe 2017, I was sitting in my office, frantically Googling things, trying to figure out um, what species should I include in my study? Where should I get the plants? What do people know? I was just like, I was excited about rhododendron, but I was like trying to look for information so that I could inform my work. And I just had this like revelation that there were all these people in the world already, and I just needed to get connected to them. So I actually reached out to Glenn Jamison, who's the editor of JARS, um, because I had interacted with him a bit at a conference. And I said, hey, I have this idea about building a network, a research network for rhododendron. And he was super jazzed about it. He was like, oh my gosh, yes, this is totally cool. And that he basically um, arranged for me to to talk about this idea at the board of directors meeting for the American Rhododendron Society. And I didn't realize at the time that that was sort of launching me into this, what has now been five years of working with volunteers for the American Rhododendron Society to build a place and a, a vision for rhododendron research worldwide. So um, the American Rhododendron Society board was super excited about it. They they were excited about the idea of bringing more scientists into the organization, sharing the results of research with the membership of the society. And what I learned at that time is the, the American Rhododendron Society has a deep scientific history it's had a a huge number of individuals who have you know written papers collected data and then not only that this ethos of observation just people looking at their plants thinking what does that mean why did it grow like that and it was just such a perfect fit it was like it was like, you know, kindred spirits just being like, oh yeah, I also do that. (laughs) I also want to label my plants, you know? And so um, at the time we reached out to a few people that we knew and said, hey, do you want to be on our steering committee? And, uh, you know, since then um, we've written some, we've written some articles, we've done conferences, um, we've applied for grants, Um, right now we're writing a couple of really big grants to try to fund like international research collaborations. So that's sort of in a nutshell, what it is. You can go to, um, rotoresearch.net is our website. Um, we also welcome community-based scientists. So you don't have to be a scientist in a lab like me to be part of the network, um, We recognize that science can take place just with your brain. Like all you need is a brain and a pencil and, and you can do science. So I encourage everybody, whether you're a scientist or whether you're a breeder or you have, you know, just that scientific bent, check out our network. Um, We're trying to develop more opportunities every day for, for scientists and community scientists to participate. So.
1: So, so you so you've got this big network of rhododendron professionals and you know or professionals, that's a weird way to say it, a bunch of uh rhododendron experts and community people who are really interested in rhododendrons. Um and obviously there's still a lot to to learn about rhododendrons. So so can you give us some sense of what are some of the unanswered questions of rhododendrons? What what's coming next for rhododendron research?
0: Oh my gosh. Um Well, that's been one of the big benefits of being, of leading the research network has been uh, getting to get in touch with everything that's happening. Um, I guess I'll start off with medicinal chemistry. Um, And that's basically the science of taking plants and finding out how they can be used as medicines. Rhododendron is a superstar. Oh my gosh. It makes me rethink like, why am I in physiology? I should have done medicinal chemistry because that basically rhododendron has all these compounds that they call secondary compounds. And those are things that in our bodies become medicines. Um, They can also become toxins. So secondary compounds are really fascinating chemicals. And the plants use them to solve problems. So secondary compounds can be something like anti-herbivory to keep animals from eating them. It can be um, something to keep them from getting damaged during something like a drought or a frost. And because rhododendrons are stress tolerant plants in some ways, they have a ton of these secondary chemicals. And so basically right now, there's a mad dash to start looking at what chemicals are in rhododendrons and what things they could treat. And so just a short list of things that they show promise in, they have a lot of promise for insulin resistance, which is an issue with diabetes. Um, They have shown that they, uh, just a recent paper, um, that they basically in, in, Vitro, which means in a petri dish, extracts of rhododendron arboreum um, kill SARS-CoV. Um, I saw that. I was going
1: to say that. If you didn't say that, I saw that. I, yeah, was
0: like, oh I mean, what? But it's <laughs> so everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's everywhere. It it's probably going to be the one of the most important medicinal plant groups on Earth. And the rush is partly because of another topic area, which is conservation. So a big area of study is people just trying to find and catalog populations, determine how rare they are, determine how endangered they are. Um, And along with that is coming the study of these um, invasive thicket forming species. So there's a lot of rhododendrons that are endangered, um, but there's a small group of maybe about five or 10 species that are actually becoming extremely bad invasives. One of them is rhododendron ponticum, which Connor mentioned. Um, and basically what they're doing is they're just taking over the landscape where they grow. So there's a lot of research basically looking at that, um, topic area. And then another area of research is just basic physiology. So it turns out when I was doing my PhD, I actually cited a lot of rhododendron papers, but I didn't really, didn't click at that time because, um, They're just a very interesting plant from a perspective of stress tolerance, even though we often think of them as sort of like prima donnas and kind of weak plants that need babying. Part of the reason they actually need babying is because we're used to growing plants that are highly productive in our gardens. And those things that you do for plants that grow really fast are actually counterproductive for rhododendrons. They like a spot with no no nutrients. They're fine with it. They're like, I will live here forever with no nutrients because nobody is crowding me out. Um, so that's actually a huge area of study for rhodos is their stress tolerance. And then in China, there's a massive effort to characterize genes for, from a horticultural perspective. So they're basically trying to sequence the genome of every rhododendron in China right now And what they're going to do with that is they're going to do breeding. They're going to do molecular breeding. They're going to say, we want a red flower on a short plant with, you know, big fuzzy leaves with red indumentum on them. So that's another really, really big area of research. And I feel like I could go on and on because rhododendron is actually touches on, it touches on literally every area of biology you cannot find an area of biology where it is not relevant. So I'll stop. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. From a horticultural point of view, people have been like pursuing a yellow flowered evergreen azalea for decades. And I kind of wanted to just remain this mystery. Like I don't want it to ever happen. <laughs> I don't, it's just so fun just to have, you know, just centuries of people trying to, trying to, create a yellow-flowered evergreen azalea. Not that that is really important at all in the grand scheme of things, but it's
0: <laughs> Well, it's if a... if people go back and listen to I think it was episode 2, the genome was the puzzle, Valerie Sosa talked a little bit about their work with flower color. And I think they're going to unravel why evergreen azaleas can't have yellows. I think yellows were some sort of a duplication event. Um, That the evergreen azaleas missed out on so we are going to solve that, although I agree with you some things mysteries are great. (laughs) I assure you there's always another mystery around the corner, so you don't have to worry about solving all of them.
2: I'm intrigued by the red indumentum you suggested. Yeah, is that something that's actually in the making or of interest?
0: There's a rusty red. I don't know if they call what do they call the rusty red, Connor?
1: I don't know. I was thinking, sorry, my dog. Um, I was thinking there's uh, I can't remember what the species is, but there's selections like there's one called Wine and Roses and Ever Red that don't Mm -hmm. have indumentum, but the backside of the leaf is just entirely red. And so I don't, I don't know if that could be paired with indimentum. That seems a little far out. Um,
0: yeah, those are the, I, I want to get some of those because those are anthocyanins, which is a, a pigment. So a lot of the work I do has been on pigments and I need, some, I know Connor, Connor, I'm always like, I need some of those Connor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, ha- I have wine and roses in a pot. I don't think we can grow it mm-hmm. reliably outside, but I'm trying to make crosses with it so that we can get that that really cool red onto a more adaptable plant. Mm. Yeah.
0: You know what you, has a red must... into indumentum rusty red? Sorry, talking over, is uh Yakushimaenum.
1: Yeah. I would, a... yeah maybe even like the um the like well what they used to call Metternichii is mm-hmm. like mm-hmm pretty like that's even like rustier than straight yak
2: it's yeah yeah but it's still rusty it's not really red not
0: red red you're right
2: not yeah no not right. artists red
0: well we'll get we'll get some red indumentum going just for you christina <laughs> you know juliana
2: your students just must uh you know they have such a resource in you i mean it must be fun to if you give a lecture you know it must be so fun to to be part of that
0: yeah you know students are supervising people is one of my favorite parts of my job the science is really fun and personally satisfying Mm -hmm. but helping another person um, figure out what they love in life and helping them realize that they can achieve that like I can't think of anything better to be honest it's the science kind of pales in comparison you know Mm -hmm. we're we're discovering some stuff. We're kind of, you know, finding some stuff, learning some new things, but it's that next person and sending them then, you know, along on their way that that really makes my job meaningful, I think, and important, so.
2: And Juliana, then um, what about in your private garden? I'm assuming that you do have a garden do you grow rhododendrons
0: I do have a garden now so I I told you guys about that garden that I grew when my son was a was a toddler Mm -hmm. and then that was my only foray into gardening for the next 20 years um and I I would often tell people oh well I grow plants at work so it's not something that I want to do once I get home um But actually I recently, I moved about a year and a half ago and the house I moved to had a a fairly nice um, shade garden. So it had uh, basically a lot of ferns and hostas. And at the same time, I had all these plants that a graduate student that I worked with had hand pollinated. So he basically created seeds for his project and germinated them. And then we had a bunch of seeds left over and I grew them up. Um, And so I have those plants. I have some of those plants in my yard and I have, I think it's 14 different species. Um, And they're the species that we've included in our studies. (laughs) So um, it's, it's actually quite delightful to see them. Um, I have, let's see if I can go through, I have Austrinum, Calendulaceum, Prinophylum, Mollae, um, Yedowence, Doricum, Fortunii, and then I have a couple of other plants that I got from ARS friends. So, um, I've got some, I do have some yaks from what I was told this is a delightful little story from what I was told it's actually a cutting from the original yak so it's a cutting of a cutting of a cutting from what they call the original yak which is the first. seeds that were grown in Edinburgh from when they were brought from China, so I don't know if that's true. But you don't I don't like really th- want to know. Just, yeah, it, I like the to. <laughs> I like to think it is. Yeah, it makes me feel connected, and you know.
2: Yeah. So well, you said um, earlier in the interview that you're a collector at heart. So if you were to expand your collection, what would you put your preferences on?
0: Um. Wow. You know, I think in terms of one of the things that our research shows is that the evergreen azaleas and the deciduous azaleas are going to do better in climate change. And so just thinking about not forcing the issues of life and being a gardener, like you have enough work to do when you're gardening. (laughs) I think I'll probably look to those groups for the most part, although I do love the the lepidotes. Um, I also like lepidotes a lot. I, I I really like lepidotes and evergreen azaleas the most. I think um, I love their leaf color. They have amazing diversity of leaf color from green to orange to yellow to purple. Um, so I'd like to get I'd like to get more lepidotes and more evergreen azaleas. I find it hard to landscape with the deciduous azaleas they're they're a bit of an awkward shape and stuff so I found a place I have a deck and I basically made it a deciduous azalea bed and I think I'm liking it it's sort of like the the deck sort of hides their bare stems so they don't look so awkwardly perched um <laughs> but man do they have the flower the floral displays of the deciduous azaleas like you can't beat it they're huge yeah they're huge and a lot of them are fragrant and charismatic so did I just answer all of them is that what my answer was <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's a good answer that's a good answer yeah <laughs>
2: sort of you touched on most of it <laughs> see that's <laughs> what the, more is there
0: Right. I mean, that's the collector in me coming out. Collectors mm-hmm. we we like we like to see all of the things lined up. So, I definitely have grown into my gardening um over time. And part of that is because I I live in Ohio and Ohio is a gardening place. I mean, it's Ohioans are into gardening. <laughs> um and so where I grew up, you didn't really garden so much as you like We'd whacked a little bit every once in a while <laughs> so here you have to garden you you have to do stuff and I so it's sort of been a combination of that and just getting more into the plants and so yeah
1: mm-hmm. that's great well thanks thanks for I guess joining us, even though we're kind of all part of the team, <laughs> is that really joining us? <laughs> it's just fun, and it's it's always great to hear what you're doing and getting to see everyone and chatting. Yeah, than it's students.
2: it's great to have all the details, you know, and uh, yeah. you really expanded on a lot of the questions that you know we would have asked over time anyway. But this was just wonderful to get to know you better and Thank to get you. to know your your area of study better.
0: Thanks for having me. Curious to learn more about the topics discussed in this episode? Visit our website at www.rotodendron.org. Here you'll find tons of rhododendron resources, including tutorials, blogs, events, databases, and more. Click on the podcast link on the homepage to find more episodes, suggest a topic for a future episode, and get in-depth information about the people, places, and plants featured here. Until next time, keep carrying that torch for rhododendron, and don't forget to talk endlessly about this podcast to all your friends and family.